If it's time for God's people to rise up, who are the people? What's the identity of us as believers? If we don't know who we are, how could we rise up? And I think that we have some kind of amnesia. And I think there is a a plot devised by the enemy of our souls who wants constantly to take us away from who we really are. If he can hide that fact from us, and if we let him do it, we are rendered powerless. We are neutralized. Also, it came home to me very recently. Uh, In fact, this week, I was away at the national leadership team meetings. Uh, I have to do that regularly for my many sins. That's my recompense. It's a tedious work. It's a very important work, but I'm not a committee man. I'm a committed man, not a committee man. But one of the joys we have on the national leadership team is to interview people who've been through the process of ministry and training and to give them their final interview to see if we'll give them the green light to proceed from a minister in training to become an ordained Elam minister. It's heavily denominational, but that's, that's our identity and that's how we work. I, I would have you know also that one of the people who came up to be interviewed was our very own Scott. He wasn't interviewed by me. They wouldn't let me do that. They thought I'd be biased. But anyway, despite that, he was accepted. So congratulations. And um, as you know, I keep regular daily communication with a whole bunch of people who are younger people. They're not in the churches at the moment, but I'm connecting with them. And and, uh, they sometimes say, "What's, what's your day like? Well, you know, they tell me what their day is like. Usually their girlfriend has left them or something like that, you know. So I said, no, 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 um, my, today I'm interviewing my allocation, six candidates for the ministry. Oh, by the way, I said, what questions would you ask them? It's an interesting thing. When you talk to your non-Christian friends, it's not a really nice term, non-Christian, because they haven't yet believed, future Christian friends. Um, they they will have a perspective, and sometimes that perspective is uh, colored by their wrong understanding, their perceptions about us that aren't necessarily true, but sometimes they are right on the mark. So the first person said to me, ah, ask them this question. Do you know the value of the person sitting in front of you? (laughs) Which was me. So that was a way of complimenting me saying, do you know how amazing Colin Dye is? Now, I wouldn't have said that. I, in fact, I don't even know why I brought it up. Apart from feeling good about it, it's entirely irrelevant. Um, I thought that was good. It was an affirmation, really, because when people who aren't believers recognize qualities in you and you've impressed them, rather, the better way of saying it is that they've seen something of Christ in you That's wonderful. That's wonderful, isn't it? But one of the other things that came up was this. Okay, don't ask them this question, but tell them. Tell them to make sure 
that they learn to take care of themselves, not just other people. And again, I think that was prejudiced by their knowledge of me because it's one of the things that I've struggled with over the years. I'm trying to get better at it. And I wonder why it is that people like me, and maybe you're like that as well, highly motivated people, why we find it so difficult to make time for ourselves. Perhaps it's, there's something that appears to be so selfish about that. I mean, Jesus didn't consider himself. He sacrificed himself. And there is a right way of sacrificing and a wrong way of sacrificing, rather like when you listen to the safety demonstration in an airplane. They say, should the cabin pressure drop? I know this inside out. In fact, next time I'm on a plane, I say, get out of the way, I'll do it myself. <laughs> if the cabin pressure drops, masks will appear in front of you and they show you how to put it on. And then they say, please make sure that your mask is securely fitted before you help somebody else. Why is that? If there's a drop of oxygen and you get dizzy or unconscious, you ain't in a fit state to help anybody, not even yourself. So there's something in that. But for me, the, the wounds go far deeper. Um, I'm a conscientious person. Um, perhaps I'm a little bit overly conscientious um, and sensitive. Um, and way, way back when I was a, a junior minister, I don't even think the egg was laid, let alone being hatched. And uh, in that day, I was under the leadership of the then senior minister, Eldon Corsi, who's with, with Jesus now, baptized me uh, in this church all those hundreds of years ago. And uh, our week was very full, seven days a week, Sundays and Saturdays. So he said, make sure that you have a day off. One in seven, make sure you have a day off. And the day that was allocated to me was Thursday. Well, whoever has Thursday off? Pastors and other lazy people, right? Anyway, so I tried to listen to myself. And what do you do on your day off? So, okay, I was enjoying a game of tennis and at that particular time, and I made my way to the local tennis courts, the council-run local tennis courts, and found somebody to have a game with. And so I was enjoying myself, just beginning to relax. Hey, this day off business is quite good, isn't it? Let's have an ice cream in a minute, you know? And I noticed to the side, watching the game, was a person, a woman, who was far too focused on what we were doing. A bit unnerving. She was clinging to those, to those um, wire netting that they have outside tennis courts. She was holding onto it. In a, you could almost see the white of her knuckles. She was poking her nose through the holes. And then it said... She turned out to be a member from Kensington Temple. And she was one of those people. You know, every church has them, all right. No wonder the church is in such a mess when the pastors are playing tennis all day. <laughs> Your laughter is therapeutic. <laughs> but at a vulnerable stage where you need to learn a fundamental principle, that did not help me. It did not release me 
into this sense that I could legitimately take time off, time away for myself. And how silly that is. And how falsely spiritual it is. Because we have this wrong idea of self, and I'm going to try and unpack a little bit of that. Whereas any focus on self at all is self-centeredness, and it's outside the kingdom. There was that old saying, and it's probably still used today, Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And when you say Jesus, others, and yourself, it spells joy. Now, I understand the principle there, but that can be twisted to mean that we have a kind of false understanding of the self and a false understanding of what Jesus meant when he said to crucify the flesh and to deny the self. So there's a lot of confusion over that. I would suggest that there is something we must tackle head on, and it's countercultural to our generation. And that is our generation, which is being described by sociologists as a post-Christian generation. It's a pre-Christian generation that hears the gospel and then the gospel takes effect and then it becomes influenced by the Christian gospel and so society changes and improves based on some of the values of the gospel. It's not that everybody becomes a Christian, but the gospel does its work in a society. And all the good things that we enjoy in our society, our freedoms, our respect for the individual, all the things that we have, our sense of moral values, all of those things have their roots in the Christian gospel as pagan Britain, pre-Christian Britain, became Christian Britain in, in, in inverted commas. We're not a Christian nation, never have been, but there's huge Christian foundations here. But when a society chooses to reject Christ, at least the reality of who Jesus is, they might want to take some of the fruit, but they reject the essentials of the Christian gospel, that post-Christian society defines itself in opposition to the Christian faith. That's why we have the ABC culture today, anything but Christian, all right? So that's, that's, that's just the background to it. But what has been put in the place of God? The self. The deification of the self. Self is the new religion. We worship ourselves. I'm talking about culturally. And anything that cuts across what I think, what I want, what I feel, what I believe and want to do is, has to be opposed. And they set themselves up against the Christian gospel because the Christian gospel is not about my way. It's about Yahweh. I just get that to play on words. I, I couldn't resist that. I do that every, every three or four months. It's not my way. It's God's way. And here's the thing. When you learn how to put God at the center, Christ on the throne of your life, suddenly you discover who you are. And your sense of self become strong, and you are confident, and spiritually strong, and spiritually assertive, and you are, you are not defensive, you just know who you are, and you're confident in who you are in Christ. So there's two things 
that I want us to avoid. These are two extremes. There's the enthroned self. And we still have a problem with that. I still want to creep back on that throne. And we have to deal with that. That's the self we have to die to. The self that wants to be in control, that wants to run its life, run, run your life it's your, own, your own way. But it's not just the enthroned self, it's the forgotten self. And I see something of the hand of the enemy. That's the opposite error, the forgotten self. That's when we don't really know who we are. I believe we have a big problem there. So the art of self-care begins with recognizing who you are. Also, it's what's helpful here, um, if you don't like the term self-care, um, many of the millennial generation have no problem with that. But some of us in the older generation find that language just a little bit too self-centered. But never mind. It, it, the Bible word for soul is the word for self. Very often, when it talks about the soul, it's talking about yourself. So we could call this soul care. Do you understand that? So I'm, I'm speaking spiritually. I am not now the latest YouTuber who is giving you some form of pop psychology. This is Bible. Your soul, your life, yourself. Now already... There's a dignity with that because God has imparted to you an identity. You are a person. You heard it first here in Kensington Temple. Go and tell the world, Colin Dye says, I'm a person. It's so obvious. But you are a person created in the image of God, even though that image has been marred and misshaped by sin, it's being restored. And God has never forgotten who you are. You are the person that he had in his mind when he created you, whatever the circumstances of your birth. You are a creative act of God. We have forgotten who we are. And time and time again, in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the, the biblical authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are reminding the people of God who you are. Don't forget who you are. Remember who you are. And this now brings us to the reading. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Um, I, I put the Bible reading here rather than the beginning. Because in the beginning you think, well, how is he going to handle this? Now you know where I'm heading. And these words will have more meaning. Because I want you to listen to this and see yourself here. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... This is you, and if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, change that today, all right? Put your trust in him. Here we go. Strong words. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, if you let 
those words come to you with revelation and you believe these words, you add faith to this and it sinks home to you, you will be in a self-state, the one that I'm talking about, confident, assured, satisfied. I'm anticipating um, Simon's message tonight, he's speaking on this. You will not be looking for other people to meet a need in you. You will not have any kind of thing working on the inside of you which makes you overly dependent on others, either by needing from them or needing to control them. You won't have to go around proving yourself to anybody because God has already proven you. He says, you are my child. Wonderful. So the beginning of healthy self-care is to discover who you are. And when you have this strong sense of self-identity, everything else begins to fall into place. Uh, that's a very strong statement, but I really do mean it word for word. I think this is one of the most foundational things which influences almost everything else about us. And almost every time things are going wrong, it's because we've moved out of that strong sense of confidence this spiritually assertive, spiritually aware state based on who we are in God's eyes, when we move from that, all kinds of problems move in. Your, your habits are harder to break. The temptations that you face have more power. The tendencies, the weaknesses that you have seem to be empowered. That's why we begin soul care, self-care, discover who you are, Find that out, find out how it feels, and stay there. And if you move from it, get back there quickly. Find out how it feels. Um, you, you can visualize this easily, I think. So if you meet somebody who is a bit depressed, going through a tough time, carrying something, they're not feeling particularly good about themselves, their body language shows it. They're kind of round their shoulders, the chest is fallen, head down. But suddenly when a confidence comes, you square your shoulders. I think a lot of neck tension comes from a wrong self-image. <laughs> you square your shoulders, automatically you breathe, you open. I I'm not talking about adopting a physical posture of proud and arrogance, you know, like two boxers in the, in the, in the weigh-in before they go into a match. I'm not talking about that. This is, this is just the sense of confidence, and that starts to affect you. It affects your breathing. It affects your posture. It affects your mental attitude. It affects your mental health. It affects so many things. And the negative side of that also happens when we lose it. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Two things about this. This is speaking, first of all, of a love bestowed. It's very hard for us to, to get this concept. Because in, in our way of thinking, love is something you fall into. I say to all you young ladies and older ladies, older but hopeful ladies, 
Be wary of anybody who falls in love with you. <gasps> Am I against February the 14th? Am I against romance? No. But somebody who falls in love with you today can fall out of love with you tomorrow. <laughs> All right. I'll give him a praise for you very quick. We, we, we find it difficult to understand that love is a choice, not a cold, dispassionate choice, because the full range of human emotions are honorable. And there are wonderful emotions. In fact, psychologists have studied falling in love. They say something happens in the brain. We don't know what. Okay? All, that, all that's very, very good. But God is not an emotionally led person. God has emotions. And if you think of God's nature and character, if he loves, he will love infinitely. Everything he does, it's not larger than life, it's because he is life. So God didn't have to bestow his love on us. There was nothing on the inside of him saying, oh, I've made these people, I feel so sorry for them, I need them, I need them, I need them, I need them. No. But out of his infinite love and mercy, he could have left us to go our own way. He could have left us lost and hopeless without God in the world, but he said, no, I will bestow my love upon them. It is a gift freely given and freely received. It was a decision, a choice. The Bible calls this election, predestination. Those words are hard to handle because sometimes people make them mean what they don't mean. It simply means that before you thought of God, he had you on his mind. Before you were born, he knew you and loved you and chose you for a destiny. It is all God's initiative. He loves you. He bestowed it upon you. You can't gain this. And in fact, if you can't gain it, you can't lose it. God will, God, you can never do anything to stop God loving you. He loves you unconditionally, forever, as a gift even though you don't deserve it, and neither do I. You can't gain it. You're not entitled to it. One of the big problems today, because everybody's talking about their rights and wanting to push their own thing on everybody else and, 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 and be the king of their own little castle, we have this sense of entitlement. We're entitled to this. We're entitled to that. Even some preachers preach wrongly about entitlement. You're entitled to be healed. You're entitled never to be sick. You're entitled to be blessed. You're entitled not to have any problems. And if anything goes wrong, it's either something wrong with you or you've chosen the wrong God and you need to find somebody else that looks after you better. But we know that's not the God of the Bible. Despite the difficulties, God is always with us. Even when things go horribly wrong, in a strange way, because of God's magnificence, we will be able to look back on it, I guarantee it, even if it's only from the perspective of heaven. We'll look back on it and say, oh, now I understand why God allowed that. He doesn't allow anything to enter your life other than it's for your good and it can work for his glory and other than that he will give you the grace and patience and a power 
to live through it and glorify him in it. The moment you lose your sense of entitlement that you deserve this and deserve that, you have done a great justice to your soul. You have begun to care for your soul. Second thing here, it's the family image, the family story here. How great the love of the love. The Father has bestowed us, and we are the children of God. 2.30 service, I'm issuing three upgrades, not for your computer program or your operating system, but three upgrades on your understanding of the church, called the Church 2.0. And we need to upgrade our understanding of the church. And, and we need to stop just being critical. I look around at churches and I think, oh my God, my God, was this really your idea? The world does not know us, therefore does not recognize the glory that is in us. And sometimes all we see is how far short we fall. But God sees us as glorious. There are kids, he says, these are my kids. You all have a friend who's got a little Johnny. Little Johnny? He's just, he's everywhere. Little Johnny is this little monster with, who's about that high. And little Johnny can do nothing wrong in mummy and daddy's eyes. And you want to take that little Johnny and um, apply some intervention. Don't tell me God isn't biased. Oh, he is biased in your favor. He loves you. He owns you. Not in the sense of, like, possessiveness and control. He's so proud of you. And, and, and that's us together. We are his kids. I believe that the church family with God, who is the father of all, should be your primary identification with family. The family of God should be your primary focus socially. The whole hub of your activity should be around church, Family. I, I'm not saying meetings. The, the meetings will kill you. Well, actually, not the meetings. I've discovered, if anything kills me before my time, it'll be meetings. Not the meetings, or the meetings between the meetings, or the meetings between the meetings, but it's the meetings between the meetings between the meetings that'll get you. So I go, oh, we come for this meeting. Oh, there's another meeting. But no, the, no, this is a meeting before the meeting. Uh, oh, this is the meeting after the meeting. And it's as if the whole gospel has been turned into the good news, which actually is bad news, that Jesus now seems to have said, I've come to give you meetings and meetings in abundance. <laughs> meetings are important. But life, uh, church is about life. And, and if you would derive your, your or place your primary focus in your connections and relationships with the family of God, and see that church is not just a place you go on Sunday. Church is a connection, a living connection that God has brought together in Christian community. And that is expressed everywhere. You are 
in church tomorrow morning, wherever you are. You are in church tonight when you go to bed because you are always connected with Christ and and with your brothers and sisters. Now, by that, I'm not saying that our natural bloodline families are not important. Of course not. Uh, They're very, very important, and and, and God wants us to honor that. But the only way we will truly honor being a father or a mother or a son or a daughter is if we honor the father from whom all the families of the earth and in heaven are named. And that's, again, a bit counterintuitive. But when we we make the center of our gravity, the Christian relationship that God has given us and the Christian mission that we're called to fulfill together, we will be about the Father's business. When when they criticize Jesus for staying too long at church, has it ever happened? Whoa, where is he? And, And he was still talking and confounding all the great scholars. And he said, did you not know that I'd be in my Father's house doing the Father's business? You are on business all the time, even when you're playing tennis. It's part of the business. Is that not right? You recreate in order to create. You need time, downtime. I know I'm ministering to some people. These words are ministering to somebody, not just me, I think. And and, and downtime is is very important, but actually it's not downtime, it's uptime, okay? So that's very important. These two things... From that first thing now. So I'm saying now that recognize who you are. You got that? And next I'm saying as well, to learn the art of self-care, learn to reflect. The ability to reflect often, deeply, and about everything. Self-reflection is a high-level spiritual Discipline. It has to be learned and practiced. And I think that one of the primary focuses on this new life that you're about to live and venture on, in which you learn to take care of yourself a little better, one of the primary focuses is making time for self-reflection, to reflect. And I, I think in this passage we have an example of what comes out of a high-level time of reflection with the Holy Spirit. How great is the love the Father's lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He's speaking out of a sense of realization. He must have been reflecting on the goodness of God. Maybe he was, as as you say, after a message so he could communicate something. But probably the Apostle John, who I believe wrote this, of course it's named after him, was one of the deepest, most reflective spiritual thinkers of his day. He was nicknamed John the Divine meaning he was a person who was schooled in the discipline of the knowledge of divinity. Wonderful example for us. And he is, he's reflecting. 
and it just overflows. Wow, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. It's realization coming from reflection, deep reflection, spiritual reflection. Learn how to reflect. I'm not talking about ruminating. I don't know if you've ever had a, a, a bad night's sleep because you made the mistake of just before you try to go to sleep, you ruminate. You think about something and, and you start to work it out in your mind and then that leads to something else, leads to something else, leads to something else and you've kept the whole, nearly the whole night awake because you got into this trap of a kind of mental thought pattern. Has it ever happened to you? Oh, okay, only me, all right. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about navel-gazing or excessive analytical self-analysis. I'm talking about in the presence of God, relax and reflect. I find in those moments or shortly after a time of reflection, I always have a notepad with me, keeping some form of a spiritual diary, but most often, God will give me a seed thought. And if I don't write it down, I forget it. I do write it down. A seed thought which can become a key, a principle, an idea, which like a seed begins to flourish and bear fruit. And so often, if we're open before God and saying, God, search me, see what you want to say to me. I, I'm, I want to reflect in your presence. It'll be something that will bring health to your spiritual life and maybe bring self-awareness. Now, there's three ways of getting this. The scripture is a reflection. You see yourself. That's why some people, you know, when they're not feeling so up, they won't turn to the Bible <laughs> because they want to avoid facing the reality. But go to the Word of God, and the Word of God will give you so much to reflect on. Also, the Holy Spirit, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, He will search your heart. He knows you, and He will lead you. He will guide you. He'll drop ideas and thoughts and and things in your life, and as you follow those, it's, that's where fruitfulness comes from. When you're in touch with the Holy Spirit, fruitfulness comes from those things. He's there to heal and strengthen and give you fruit and give you wisdom. Beautiful. And the third source of this, dear friends, is your brothers and sisters. Because they are the ones who will speak you the truth. And in our meetings, when we have our cell meetings throughout the week, 50% of that focus is upon soul care, allowing people to fellowship together in such a way as people will point out to you. Have you ever, have you ever heard this? Um, I, I would just like to share something with you in love, you think, uh-oh, where's the nearest exit? <laughs> because if they have to tell you it's in love, maybe it ain't. <laughs> because, you, why did, don't tell me it's in love, just tell me lovingly. But sometimes, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Uh, what blind spots do you have? I don't know if you've done management consultants or you know the Joe Harry window, do you know that one? It's talking about the different areas of awareness. One is a blind spot where others see 
something about us, and we don't see it. Everybody sees it but us. I find spiritually people can be like that. People can be heaping judgment on another person while they're guilty of the very same thing but don't see it. Have you ever found that? Okay. So this kind of reflection, and if we share together and minister the word of God to each other and practice soul care, in other words, not just have a little friendship group where you have a uh, back somebody up when they're complaining about a third party, if they back you up when you complain about a third party, that's worldly friendship. No, spiritual friendship is about ministering Christ and his truth to one another not by any premeditated way, but when the Holy Spirit flows, when the Spirit of God in you connects with the Spirit of God in me, there is a flow of life and power. That's the body of Christ. Okay. Recognize who you are. Reflect often and deeply about everything. Finally, live in the constant state of renewal. We're different from the world. Never truer words. The, the world does not know us. We are rejected because we're not of this world. Happy news. Yes? The world knows its own and loves its own. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. We might as well be space invaders from another planet because we are not of this world. He has made us new. Our citizenship is in heaven. They don't know us because they don't know him. We know him, therefore we're different. And here's the difference. When we know him, Something happens to us. We're changed. And this is, this is the strongest dynamic for change in the direction of God that you'll ever find. Very strong statement, but I, I do believe it. When are you changed? When you see him. Doesn't it say this? We, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we will see him as he is. What a dynamic. The apostle Paul says, we behold the Lord with an open face and are being changed from glory to glory. We are changed when we see him. When we meet him in the first instance, we're changed. When you met Christ, what happened to you? He changed your life. And today, that's the change in your life that you need if you are not yet a believer in Christ. When you see him and know him, everything changes. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away and everything has become new. Take a good look at me. What you are you seeing? What are you seeing? You're seeing a new man. There's quite a bit of the old left. A lot more than there should be. But fundamentally, I am a new creation. And you are a new creation. And we are part of God's 
renewal program for the planet. Did you know that? That's how radical this is. Our faith is not some kind of airy-fairy opinion kind of thing. It is about the ultimate reality of the universe breaking into this world and changing everything to its original design and even better than it was at the beginning. That's our God. Amen. The renewal program will climax at the return of Jesus Christ and he will make everything new. New heavens and a new earth. No more suffering or tears or dying or crying or anything like that. God will have fully restored his original intention on this planet and I dare to say even beyond because we believe in redemption but more than redemption. When God comes back to fix what's wrong, he leaves you better off than you ever were. And when he comes, we will be changed. I, I, I might be exaggerating the point a bit for dramatic effect, but God forbid I should ever be dramatic from this pulpit. There's Jesus. There's you. You see Jesus, and when you see him as he is, wow, you're totally transformed. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but because it's a process. It's a process. The change will have been completed on that day, but the change has already begun. Renewal is taking place all the time. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, renewing. That's why the inward man is being renewed every day. Wonderful. And now this actually links, and I intended to do this, back to the vision and revelation for our days. I'm glad I waited more than 20 years to put it together in this format. One of the main thrusts of the prophecy was 1998, 20 years ago. God showed signs of his displeasure to wake up the church that would become preachers of good news in a dark time in our society. But as we have seen, and it's it's not just me going in a dark room and reflecting and coming out with call and die ideas. There's a bit of that. But these, these, these thoughts are not unique to me. Strong, proven, trusted, prophetic voices around the world are beginning to announce a new day is coming. And anyway, let's leave that on one side. But to say we certainly need it. We need God right now. If only God would break in and do something new, and maybe saying, well, if only you'd get ready because I'm, I'm, I'm coming. You better get ready. That's why this last word is, whoever has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. That's our responsibility. We'll put all our eggs in the one basket. The most of what we'll ever get is in the future. We have a tiny foretaste now, and if it's as amazing as this, let's go full hog, and put everything into the hope that is in Christ, the future coming of Jesus, and all that will mean for this planet and the rest of the universe. Hallelujah. But that means we invite the spirit of renewal. Renew my heart. Renew my mind. And that's what is the day-to-day -day responsibility of believers. The rest is up to God. And if he chooses in this 
season of ongoing renewal until Jesus returns to come and give us superabundant explosion of renewal experiences, a new move of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the ways that God keeps his church refreshed, keeps his church on track, and also redirects his church for new seasons so that we'll face the challenges of our generation. I would say that is almost a logic that will cry out for the move of God. And I don't want to go this far, but it's almost as if that, to my mind, satisfies my mind that God is going to do it. God is going to do it. And so let's ask God for his grace. Okay, so I ended up with all the vision stuff, but my real pastoral desire was to give you some beauty treatment today. Uh, chicken soup for the soul, but also a spiritual product that you can apply to beautify your life because you're worth it.